All right. Let me pray um, and want to introduce the topic that we're going to talk over the next couple of weeks. All right. <clears throat> we thank you for this morning. Um, thank you that we get to be here together to seek to know you and to know um, who you are and your church more, more fully. Thank you that we get to be here ultimately as a church to worship you, um, to glorify you, um, to feed on your word. I just ask that you bless this morning's apologetic time that the things I say would be, would be true and faithful to, um, to you and to your word. I pray this would encourage us, help us to trust you more fully, um, and allow us to be more faithful witnesses um, to this truth and, and hope that we've um, based our lives on. We pray over all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. Thank you all for, for being here. Um, so the next couple of weeks, we're going to be um, studying the topic of the resurrection and why it matters. Um, and, and this week, we're going to be focusing on it more from like an academic, historical perspective of like why do we actually believe the resurrection? But I think ultimately as Christians, we believe the resurrection because that's what the Bible says happened. Um, even if you just like outside of the Bible, because um, just taking above what it says, like why do we actually believe that there's this man who lived 2,000 years ago who claimed to be the son of God and then died and then rose again and we've now decided to base our lives off of that. Um, are there other, other reasons for that? And then next week we're going to be focusing maybe a little bit more scripturally like why does the resurrection matter? Um, why does it, why is it important that Jesus died and rose again? Actually is it important that Jesus died and rose again? We'll answer questions like do you have to believe in the resurrection to be a Christian? Is it, is it that important? And then we'll also look a little bit more hopefully in a more encouraging perspective of like what does what did the resurrection of Jesus accomplish for us like what what are some of the core beliefs and hopes that we have as Christians that was accomplished when Jesus rose again that's going to be next week so just to start I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit but I wanted to preface this entire two-week study uh, with this quote on the importance of the resurrection um, by a I believe it's a German theologian named Ludwig Wittgenstein um, and it says this. This is when he was asked, uh, like, you know, what would it mean if Jesus didn't, didn't rise again? He says, quote, It is as though I play with the thought. If he did not rise from the dead, then he decomposed in the grave like any other man. He is dead and decomposed. In that case, he is a teacher like any other and can no longer help. And once more we are orphaned and alone. So we have to content ourselves with wisdom and speculation. We are in a sort of hell where we can do nothing but dream, roofed in, as it were, and cut off from heaven. So hopefully I'll provide more reasons as like why that statement's actually true next week when we look at why does the resurrection matter. But uh, this whole, I want to frame this whole discussion knowing that this is a really crucial issue for us as Christians. Like this is one of the most important, if not the most important hill to die on. Um, and if there is no resurrection, and Paul says, like, we are of all people most to be pitied. So it is important, I think, for us to understand, like, why we believe the resurrection. And, and as we engage with unbelievers, we had to give some, some reasons, both within Scripture and outside of Scripture, why is it reasonable and actually the best, most reasonable conclusion for us to come to that, that Jesus rose from the dead. So, why do we believe the resurrection? Um, and the primary question I'm going to be trying to answer as we we go through this is, you know, what in light of all of the evidence that we have concerning Jesus's resurrection is the most con uh, reasonable conclusion to draw. So we're going to look at some of the different pieces of quote unquote evidence that we have. And then based off of that, like what is what is the most reasonable conclusion to draw? So again, a little bit more of a scientific historical approach to it. Um, so uh, I read a couple different books, sort of skimming a couple different books and reading this. So one of them you probably heard of, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He's a, a former lawyer, so he takes a very like law-centered approach to it, like looking at all the evidence, uh, you know, cross-examining your witnesses. He focuses on four different aspects of the resurrection. And the second book is a debate by William Lane Craig and Gerd Ludman. Um, William Lane Craig actually was interviewed by Lee Strobel. Um, and is one of the, I would say, one of the more foremost um, apologists for the resurrection. 
Um, and Lane Craig, when he, you know, in this debate, he provides, I think, four established facts that if you look at it, provide a really clear defense for the resurrection. Um, and these, there's the four facts that we're gonna go through today. So the first one is that Jesus died and was buried. The second one was that there was an empty tomb discovered a few days later. The third one is that Jesus appeared after death to multiple and many people. And the fourth is that uh, the disciples believed that Jesus was resurrected. So we're going to go through you know, each of those four facts and give some different evidences, reasons why it's actually very reasonable to believe that those things happened. And then based off of those four facts, we'll kind of come back at the end and look at, is there really any other way to understand what happened other than that Jesus rose from the dead? So first, Jesus died and was buried. One thing I forgot to mention at the end. Now, I'm focusing more on uh, evidences for the resurrection. I'm not addressing too much the different like opposing theories or like trying to, to cover them in depth. I'm going to mention a few just so you're aware of what they are. Uh, but I want you to feel free if, if you've heard a like a opposing theory or you've had a question that's been really difficult and it kind of comes up as we're going, please ask that and we'll try to talk through that. Uh, I may or may not have it in my notes, but I'll seek to address it as best I can. So, <clears throat> Jesus did, did Jesus die and was he buried? So some of the things that you know this is going to help us guard against is, you know, did Jesus not not die on the cross like Muslims would claim? Um, there's a maybe not so popular. There is a um, atheistic theory that that he just swooned, that he fainted on the cross. You know, he was given that that wine, he drank it, probably drugged him, he fell asleep, and then he was put in the grave. Two days later, someone came with a damp cloth, put it over his nose, and he woke up. But that's that's actually a theory. Um, so we're kind of guarding against, like, did, did he actually die? So um, Lee Strobel like, goes super in-depth um, in asking these questions and, and goes through everything that the Bible says happened to Jesus leading up to his crucifixion and then actually when he was crucified and tries to, he talks with a, a medical doctor to decide, is it even possible for Jesus to have survived what happened? So this next part is going to be a little bit gory, I'm going to warn you. But we're just going to kind of talk through, like, what are some of the conclusions of, like, what actually happened to Jesus on the cross? So we got to start, actually, before the cross. Um, the night before in Gethsemane, the Bible says that he was sweating blood, which is a, a condition called hematidosis. Um, and that happens when you're under extreme psychological stress, which, which makes sense given the circumstances. So he's already under extreme psychological stress. He's then arrested, goes to trial, taken to Pilate, and he's flogged. Flogging um, for the Romans was a pretty extreme form of punishment. Uh, it basically kills you, but doesn't kill you. Um, it's, it's these pieces of leather, and it's usually laced with metal balls and bits of bone, and it would have just completely shredded all of his back. Um, there would have been bone potentially showing, organs would have been visible, uh, he would have lost so much blood, he would have probably gone into something called hypovolemic shock, which is when you have so little blood in your body that your heart can't even pump it. Like it's just trying to pump it, and it just, it just can't. And that's before he even gets to the cross. And then he, he's taken, he has to walk to, get to, uh, to Golgotha, and then he's crucified. Um, crucifixion was yet another form of extreme torment that was meant to kill you, but it was meant to last a really, really long time. So what they would have done is they would have taken these five to seven inch spikes, put it in Jesus' wrists, um, the location of where it would have gone would have crushed major nerves, causing extreme pain. And I, I just a brief note here, the word that we get excruciating comes from crucifixion, cruciating. Um, so they, there's a whole new word that was invented to describe what actually happened on the cross. There was no other words to describe it. Um, his arms would have then been stretched as, um, as they were nailed. And as soon as the cross would have gone up, he would have sunk down and his shoulders would have been dislocated from his body. And then from there, what the cross was designed to do was to slowly kill you, slowly kill you um, by um, the technical term is asphyxiation. But basically, just you can't breathe anymore. Um, in order to breathe, he would have had to push up on his feet um, to give his diaphragm enough room to actually pull in some air, either pull out or push out, I can't remember exactly, but to actually breathe. You can only do that so much before you just exhausted and then you would, you would slump and you would not be able to breathe anymore. So it's more than likely Jesus actually died on the cross when he says it is finished and he dies. He probably died of cardiac arrest. Um, 
Now it's just been done due to the amount of carbon dioxide in his body, and he wouldn't have been able to get enough oxygen. And then we've got that his, his heart was pierced by the Roman soldier. Um, and just a brief note here, because he would have been a hypovolemic shock, um, that actually causes fluid to build up in the heart. And so when he is pierced, um, we're told in the, in the Gospels that there was like a clear liquid, it looks like blood and water coming out of him. That actually, like, that, that's what happens when you have hypovolemic shock. That fluid looks like water builds up near your heart. And so it would have been pierced. All of that fluid in that, that blood would have been released. So there, there's really almost no, no doubt that if, if those things happened, which there's good reason to believe that they did, like, there's almost no way Jesus could have survived that, let alone then having drugged, fallen asleep, taken off the cross, and laid in a tomb to lay in that condition for a couple of days and then expect him to survive that. Like he would have needed some extreme medical attention. Um, there's every reason to believe that, like the Gospels claim, Jesus died on the cross, but even if he didn't, um, nobody survived that to that degree before. So we've got good reason to believe that, that Jesus died. But then there's the question of, you know, was Jesus actually buried? So some, some scholars would claim, well, you know, uh, Criminals that were crucified were usually placed in mass graves, and they would have been eaten up by animals, or they would have just been covered by dirt. What if he was just put in a mass grave, and you know, then a couple of days later, his disciples claim, "Well, he's he's risen," but there's no actual way to validate who his body is because it's with all these other criminals. Well, we've got good evidence too to believe that Jesus was actually buried. Um, and I, I found, or I was given rather, six six key reasons to believe that we he was buried. Um, the, one, the first is that the location of the tomb would have been known. So all of the Gospels specify that the tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, which means that it would, would have been possible for them to pinpoint where Jesus was actually buried. Now, if this was a legend or the disciples were coming back you know, decades later to come up and make up the story that Jesus was risen, it wouldn't have made sense for them to, to name drop Joseph of Arimathea and say, well, that's the grave that Jesus was buried in. By providing his name, they're providing... A historical person and somebody somebody in a location that others could have followed up on and said, hey, is that tomb empty or not? Is there a body in the tomb? So the fact that they mentioned where the tomb was gives us good reason to believe that he was actually buried there. The second is that um, Jesus' burial was attested um, by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. So next week we're going to spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 15 because it's a really great passage in understanding that the resurrection happened and also what does the resurrection mean for us as Christians. But from a, a more academic perspective, uh, it's believed that 1 Corinthians is one of the earlier um, letters and just earlier documents that we have um, in the New Testament, which at first confused me just a little bit, but makes sense when you think about it, because Paul would have been converted not long after um, Jesus' death and resurrection. He would have been then doing his missionary journeys, and then I, I, we would assume then writing letters back. So it wouldn't have been too, too long after this happened that he's not writing back to the first to the uh, Corinthian church. And I'm going to read this passage um, just so you can hear what he says. Um, but because it's so early, it gives us a really good picture of like, what was the church teaching from the very beginning. Okay, so this is 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we're going to go verses 3 through 5. So Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So in that passage we actually have you know, both he died according to the scriptures and then he was buried. Now, is it possible that Paul was making that up? Yes, but it at least shows us from the very beginning that the church was teaching Jesus' death and burial. But it's not just Paul. I mean, we, we have it um, in the Gospels as well. Um, and a lot of scholars think that Mark was the earliest Gospel. Um, that's debated, and some say may argue otherwise. But if you want to go with the argument, well, Mark is the earliest Gospel, more than likely, uh, he was writing his Gospel using an even earlier source, um, especially the account from Jesus' arrest to his death and burial. Uh, and he includes the burial. Um, so we have this early source including that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. And then another point just to recognize is um, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for the, for the early Christians to make up that Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb. 
First, because again, uh, that would specify the location. But also, if you're going to make up an account of Jesus' burial, it would make more sense to pick someone who is not naturally his enemy. But Joseph was, was a part of the Sanhedrin and potentially was even there when Jesus was condemned to, to be sent over to Pilate. He's not the type of person you would really want to make up as, well, actually secretly he was Jesus' friend and now he's going to be the one to bury him. It would make more sense for it to be Peter or one of the disciples or even like Mary. Uh, but the fact that it's, it's someone you wouldn't expect makes it more likely that's what actually happened. It's not the type of thing you would make up. Connected with this one as well, um, the, the burial story lacks um, traces of legendary uh, development. So if you look at you know, stories and myths from, from the past, uh, and you look at different versions of them, they seem to get, they tend to get a little bit bigger the more they go. Um, it's like that, that story that your grandparents always tell, and every year they, they want to tell you it, but it changes just a little bit each year, and it gets a little bit more grander. That's kind of what happens with myths. Um, and if you look at the burial account in all four Gospels, um, there are some, some differences, which we'll touch on in a moment, but the, the key core aspects remain the same every time. You don't really see this extra edit, added flair to it. Um, the core story remains the same every time. If this was a legend, you would kind of expect it to, to change a little bit and to be grow a little bit more grand. Um, rather, it's a pretty gory and, and simple story. And last but not least, um, for Jesus' burial, we don't really have a, a um, well-attested to competing story. Uh, we can come up with competing theories about what happened, but there's no other account that we have that says, well, Jesus was actually buried in, uh, you know, buried with his father back in Nazareth. Like, we don't, we don't really have that. Um, the only one that we have that's actually written is this, this story. So all of this um, kind of leads us to the conclusion that, that Jesus actually died, like the Gospels claim, and that Jesus was actually buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, like the Gospels claim. Um, there's a, I believe now deceased, um, really famous New Testament scholar named John A.T. Robinson. Uh, he taught at the University of Cambridge as a, as a New Testament scholar. Um, and he's quoted, actually he's quoted multiple times in what I read, um, as saying that the, the burial of Jesus is actually one of the earliest and most best attested facts that we have about him. Which is kind of interesting because he's got like 33 years of life that um, you know, things happened there. And what they say is we know the best about him is that he died and was buried. You can say that with, with quite a bit of confidence. So, fact number one, Jesus died and he was buried. The next fact um, under question is, you know, was the tomb actually empty um, a couple days later? So um, those who would argue against the story of the empty tomb, uh, one of the first things that they might point out is the contradictions in different stories that you have. So if you read the, the four gospel accounts, which I, I just went through and, and read them last night, starting with the crucifixion until Jesus rise again, there's some, there's some interesting differences. Um, and at first you might be like, this is kind of confusing. Like, you know, one person says there were two men at the tomb. Another person says it was a little boy or a little man. Another person says the angel was there. That the names of the women change. Um, so there are some, some contradictions. I would like to summarize those for you uh, from this book. Just so you can, just so you can hear what they are. Um, so this is um, a man named Dr. Michael Martin of Boston University, who I believe is an atheistic scholar. Um, and this is what he lists as the um, contradictions. So in Matthew... When Mary Magdalene and the other Mary arrived toward dawn at the tomb, there's a rock in front of it, and then there's a violent earthquake, and an angel descends and rolls back the stone. In Mark, the, the women arrive at the tomb at sunrise, and the stone had already been rolled back. In Luke, when the women arrive at early dawn, they find the stone has already been rolled back. Then in Matthew, an angel is sitting on the rock outside the tomb, and in Mark, a youth is inside the tomb, and then in Luke, two men are inside. In Matthew, the women present at the tomb are Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. In Mark, the women present at the tomb are the two Marys and Salome, or Salome. In Luke, it's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joanna, and the other woman, and the other woman are present at the tomb. And then last, in Matthew, the two Marys rush from the tomb in great fear and joy, run to tell the disciples, and meet Jesus on the way. Then in Mark, they run out of the tomb in fear and say nothing to anyone. 
In Luke, the women report the story to the disciples who do not believe them, and there is no suggestion that they met Jesus. So initially, like when I was reading through that, I was like, ah, oh, that doesn't feel particularly good. I would kind of prefer that all four stories matched up exactly. Um, I think especially from our perspective, we really prefer history that, that matches up. Like if a story happens and you, know, you go to one, one news website and they give one account, and then we go to another news website and they give a different account, like we don't feel very good about it. We'd much rather the facts match up. Even if the opinions of what happened don't, don't match up, we want at least the facts. So from a, um, at least from a modern perspective, reading those four accounts may lead to a conclusion that they're not super credible because they don't match. What I'd like to argue is that uh, it's helpful to remember that this is a piece of, of history. Um, and that while there are some details that differ across all four of those accounts, that they're always secondary details. So this goes back again to that we don't really have a ton of legendary development on the, in the story across the four. Um, that the core story remains the same, that Jesus was buried, that he rose again, um, and that at least the, the, the tomb was empty, that it was originally found by women, and that they were told that it was because Jesus had risen again, and then they go back to the disciples. Some of the details get a little fuzzy, but again, that's kind of something you'd remember. Like I feel like whenever Emily and I go home to visit family, whether it's us or somebody else telling a story, like usually the husband will start telling a story and then the wife will pick in like, well, that's not exactly what happened. Like you have those different details. That's what you would expect. We've got four different people telling the same story and they might disagree a little bit on some of the, the secondary details, but they don't disagree on what actually happened and what the conclusion of it was. You would kind of expect some of those, those major differences to be there, but they're not. I think this is um, a good time to kind of step back and just note that it's very interesting the way that non-Christian scholars treat the Bible um, in history. Um, they place it under a level of scrutiny that they don't really place any other ancient historical document under. Which, if they wanted to argue, they could argue, well, it's because it's a religious document that people are basing their lives off of. And I'd be willing to grant that point, but um, for any other story in history, if a, if a non-Christian historian received four different accounts that basically told the same story with a few different details off, like they would be ecstatic. Like that would almost guarantee that it happened, that it was true, we've got these four separate accounts. They don't do that with, with the Bible. And I don't say that to, well that means that we just need to completely disregard their opinion, but it's just helpful to remember that when someone comes to you and say, well there's these different contradictions, we gotta remember it's a piece of ancient history. This is not the same um, lens that we view other documents with. Um, and if we actually use the lens that um, secular historians would like to use, it gives us even greater confidence that this actually happened. So I was just addressing some of the um, contradictions that we have um, to the empty tomb and in the empty tomb account and a, a potential um, pushback against that story. But on the affirmative side, um, there's a few pieces of evidence that gives us good reason to believe that not only is it unlikely that it didn't happen, but likely that it, it did. First one being, again, 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul does say that, the, that Jesus rose again. There are some scholars that look at 1 Corinthians 15 and say, well, Jesus, or that Paul doesn't mention an empty tomb. You, know, you would think that if, if Jesus actually rose again physically from the dead, he would mention that the tomb was empty, but he just says resurrected. Is, he, is Paul just talking about a spiritual resurrection? You know, Jesus came to in, in a vision, right? So maybe it was just spiritual. It doesn't make sense given the context. Um, Paul was a well-educated Jew. And in, in Jewish tradition and thought at that time, they had a physical understanding of resurrection. They didn't believe that it could happen in regular day-to-day -day life. But they did believe that there would be an end day when there would be the resurrection of the dead. Uh, if you remember the story of Lazarus's resurrection, um, Jesus goes to Martha and he says, you believe that he will be raised? And she says, yes, I believe he'll be raised at the resurrection of the dead of the last days. Um, she meant a physical resurrection. She didn't understand that Jesus was saying, no, I'm going to do this right now. Uh, but she understood that there was going to be a resurrection in the last day. So it wouldn't make a ton of sense. It would be kind of a contradiction of terms for Paul, who was immersed in this tradition, to now be using the term resurrection and kind of He's saying, well, it's actually just a spiritual resurrection. When, when he says resurrection, he means a physical resurrection, which then implies an empty tomb. Now, if that's the case, then from a secular perspective, we have this really early document, 1 Corinthians 15, 
that attests to there's there's an empty tomb. Uh, again, we'll, we'll look at Mark too. Um, Mark also mentions an empty tomb. Uh, probably got that from an early source, um, and some would say maybe even as early as 37 A.D., which, if my math is correct, is not only just a few years after Jesus died. Uh, not likely that a legend would have come up just a few years, a few years later and said, "Well, actually, you know, he really died. He's buried here, but we're going to say he's resurrected." And when we look at legends um, in other cultures and in the past. It takes a really long time for them to develop um, and become the, the mythological stories that they are. If they try to sprout out, or sprout out, sprout up early, excuse me, um, the oral tradition and the people that were actually there are going to squash that pretty quickly. Um, it's really hard to tell someone that Jesus rose from the dead five years later when all they have to do is point you to Joseph's tomb and say, "No, he didn't. Like he's he's right there." Uh, but the, but they couldn't. Um, so the fact that we've got Mark attesting to Using an earlier source, saying that Jesus rose from the dead um, pretty early on, grants that this is likely true, um, or at least that the empty tomb is, is true. Similar to Jesus' burial, um, the simplicity of the story um, makes for uh, gives us greater confidence that this actually happened. Um, there are other Gospels. Uh, one that was mentioned a couple times was the Gospel of Peter where there's a little bit more of embellished legendary accounts of Jesus' resurrection. Like people were actually there and saw him walk out of the tomb. I think there's like trumpets blaring and angels there. It's like quite a, a fantastical story. This is pretty simple. Like no one actually, in the, in the gospel accounts, no one actually sees Jesus walk out of the tomb. Depending upon the account, some see him relatively soon after and some don't. But there's not a, a whole lot of fanfare. It's just that the tomb was empty. And they're told that Jesus has resurrected it like he said he would and that he's coming back. It's not an epic story, even though the reality behind it is quite epic and amazing. Um, the simplicity of the story gives us greater confidence that it wouldn't have been made up. Because again, if you think about it, you've got these Christians that are coming out of Judaism, kind of a sect, they're being persecuted. If you're trying to get people to join your cause, generally you try to make up or come up with the best story possible. Even if that story is based off of truth, you're gonna try to frame it and make it look as attractive as possible. Um, you don't usually go with the simplest version of the story. And yet, that's what the Gospels, all four, go with. And then the last, uh, I think, pretty compelling piece of evidence is that um, the testimony across all four Gospels is that the, the tomb was found by women. Now, this would have been really um, important and interesting at that time because um, in that culture, the testimony of women was pretty much worthless. You couldn't go to a judge and say, hey, you know, this woman saw something. They would throw that, that testimony out. So for all four Gospels to claim that Jesus rose again and the tomb was empty and it was found by women wouldn't have been super credible. So the only reason you would include that in there is if that's actually what happened, if you're trying to give an accurate testimony of, of what happened. And so it's astonishing that they would choose to do that. And again, if this was a legend or a myth and so us trying to deceive people, it would make more sense for Peter to be the first person who found it, or one of the disciples. And it wasn't. It was it was the women, um, and it was also the women who were most faithful and were, were with Jesus when he died, um, unlike some of the other disciples. I misspoke. That's not the last piece of evidence I have. I've got a couple more. Um, again, the site of Jesus' tomb was known. Um, so I use that as a piece of evidence for it. He was buried. The reason that this also provides evidence that the tomb was empty is people can point to, hey, that tomb isn't actually empty. And not only from a, from a Christian perspective, like if you're trying to convert someone, they could ask, well, is the tomb actually empty? But also from a Jewish perspective, um, the, the Jews um, adamantly against the Christians fought against them. Uh, they don't actually deny that the tomb is empty. And in fact, we see from a pretty, pretty early on their argument and polemic against the Christians presupposes the empty tomb. They just claim that the body was stolen. So then you have to. Then we need to sort through: is it more likely that the body was stolen or that Jesus rose from the dead? But even Christian, Christianity's early opponents don't argue that the tomb was there and was full. They, they actually assume that the the tomb was empty, and they accuse Christians of stealing the body. So based off of what we have and the kind of the case we have at this point. Pretty good confidence Jesus died. I think really good confidence Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. 
And then I think really good confidence as well that just a few days later, uh, the tomb was empty. So next thing to, to address and think about is, um, you know, did, did Jesus actually appear to people after death? Uh, it's one thing if the tomb is empty, but if no one ever sees Jesus again after that, you know, it could have been grave robbers, it could have been the disciples. But there's really no reason to think that, that Jesus was actually alive because no one saw him. Based off of the, the four gospel accounts and I think also First Corinthians, uh, we've got a pretty long list of appearances that are claimed. I'm going to briefly go through those. Uh, the first one is Mary Magdalene, and that's in John 20. Uh, we have the other women in Matthew 28. We have Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to, Dema- or to Emmaus excuse me, in Luke 24. We have the 11 disciples and others also in Luke 24. You have the, the 10 apostles and others in John 20. You have Thomas and the other apostles in John 20. The seven apostles, or seven of the apostles in John 21. You have the disciples in Matthew 28, and then the apostles and disciples on the Mount of Olives. That's accounted for in Luke 24 and Acts 1. So a pretty long list of people that are supposed to have seen Jesus after death. So then what, what reason do we believe that this actually happened? So once again, going back to 1 Corinthians 15, most of that, that list is actually included in Corinthians. Pretty long list. Once again, Paul is name-dropping people that, that saw Jesus after death. Think about it um, just from a more naturalistic perspective. If you're trying to convince someone that something happened, um, you're not usually going to mention people's names that they could then follow back up on and cross-reference unless it actually happened. Uh, you could argue that, well, they're in Corinth. How, would, how Are they actually going to travel to Jerusalem and interview those people? But if this story is true and you're about to sacrifice your life for it, usually you want to go back and, and check your evidence. Um, if Paul was trying to deceive them and, and include a made-up story. Just don't include the names. Just say he rose from the dead. But he includes the names. Uh, Peter, the disciples, uh, he didn't include names, but mentions 500 different people. Uh, assumably, presumably he would have known some of them because he says that some of them have already passed away. Uh, he mentions James, um, all of the apostles, and then himself. In the, the list of appearances at the beginning, um, I mentioned usually just one reference that kind of says, hey, this happened. But we actually do have a pretty good cross-reference of the four Gospels that, that mention a lot of the same names. So for example, Peter, uh, both Paul and Luke mentioned that he uh, saw Jesus. The disciples, we have Paul and Corinthians, Luke and John. The women, we have Matthew and John. Uh, then the disciples in Galilee, you've got Mark, Matthew, and John. So we've got a pretty good like pocketing of these different accounts saying Jesus actually did see them. Now, if every appearance only had one account, I think it, it would still be true, but you'd have less reason to, it'd be more likely or more possible that that was just made up. But because we have multiple different attestations that this did actually happen, um, it, that gives us greater greater confidence that it did. And the, the last thing is the diversity of those appearances. Um, they have, the, Jesus appeared to different people at different times and in different locations. If it only happened like in, you know, in one room and Jesus appeared there briefly and 500 people saw him and then no one ever saw him again, again, could it happen? Absolutely. But the fact that not only did he appear to the disciples in the room, but he also appeared on the road to Emmaus. He also appeared in Galilee, which is not necessarily that close to Jerusalem. He got these different locations. That would have been hard to make up. And also, um, unless it's true, um, that's not the simplest account of the story. It's actually the most com- more complicated account, which I think gives us greater confidence that it's the true account. Um, it's not something you would want to, to make up. And if, so even if it's, okay, you want to say that that's not a made-up story, but it's just what they believed, any other theory can't really account for you know, why is he popping around in these different locations and seeing all these different people, especially if you wanted to go with like a hallucination theory that the disciples didn't really see Jesus in the flesh, they just hallucinated him or had a vision. Is that possible? Absolutely. But um, that, that doesn't really capture well how is he all, in all these different locations. Now, are they really going to hallucinate in three different places um, and have all these different people hallucinate him? Hard to explain. So a couple different alternatives um, that, that have been proposed to, to the appearances. One of them is, um, you know, isn't this just 
legendary, it isn't just a myth, which we've kind of already addressed, but uh, what, what opponents will provide is, well, if you look at Mark and go all the way up to John, it seems like the story gets a little bit longer and there's a few other details. So they would actually argue that it's not that simple of a story when you have these gospel writers adding these legendary mythological elements to make it a more compelling story. I don't think that that's very, um, a very compelling argument. A couple reasons for that is that not everyone agrees that Mark is the earliest, so you don't have to say that that was the, the most simple account. You know, some would say it was actually Matthew, which is a little bit has a few extra details. Um, it doesn't really explain the earliest belief that Jesus rose from the dead, so even if you want to concede, well, Mark is the early gospel, he still says that Jesus rose from the dead. So if you, even if you wanted to um, allow that there's some added details um, to the other gospels, they still all contain the fact that he rose from the dead. That part is not a legendary development. That's, that's a core part of the story. You've also got, if you want to continue with the argument of, well, 1 Corinthians is the earliest source, well, that also includes the appearances. So it's not something that would have been legendary like that. That includes it. That includes the fact that um, Jesus met with people. And even if this, these are legendary accounts of his appearances, that still doesn't explain the empty tomb. Um, we've already said the empty tomb is, is real. The tomb was empty. If, he just, if they just hallucinated him, you still have to explain where the body is. It doesn't capture that part of the story. And then the last um, alternative, which I kind of already touched on, is, is kind of is the more like hallucinate, uh, hallucination. Um, and what um, people who respect the Bible but still want to argue for this approach would say, well, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul mentions all these appearances and he includes himself in the list. Well, in Acts, we don't really have reason, like it doesn't really say that Jesus appeared to him physically, it seems like it was more of a vision. So if that's what happened to Paul, and he's including his, the Jesus' appearances with his, wouldn't it make sense for them all to be more visionary, uh, visionary appearances rather than a physical one? Um, William Lane Craig pushes against, back against this pretty hard. Um, and it's just, the, I think the best response to that is just the simplicity of the text. Uh, you have to, to let the text say what it is saying, and not make it say something that it isn't actually saying. So based off of the fact that Paul includes his appearances with the rest, and we, we know some details about his, his um, witnessing of Jesus, uh, this is what, what Lane Craig says. Uh, Certainly, Paul did want to attribute to the appearance he witnessed the same significance that the appearance had for the other disciples. But precisely for that reason, we cannot infer that the earliest appearances were of the same character as Paul's vision. So uh, reading the, the text of 1 Corinthians in its context, it's clear that Paul wants to include his appearance with the same level of weight and importance as the rest of the disciples. But you can't say, well, because he's doing that, or because you can't, from the text, say, well, that means he's, it's of the same um, type. Uh, it, his appearance was the exact same. The text doesn't say that. Uh, one argument could be that because he uses the same word for I saw and they saw, that that's, that meant that it was the same type of seeing. You know, I saw Jesus in a vision, so therefore Peter also saw Jesus in a vision. But you're giving that word a lot more significance than it actually carries. Uh, just like in, in English, like if I say I appeared to you, um, that appearance could mean a lot of different things. I could have appeared to you over a video call. I could have appeared to you in person. In English, it doesn't actually say what, what, how that happened. So in the same way, in, in the language um, that Paul was writing in, it would be hard to say to with confidence that he meant a physical appearance or a spiritual appearance. You'd be giving it more more power and more weight than it actually carries. So we don't really have anything in the, the Gospels or the New Testament itself that gives us reason to believe that the disciples thought they saw a vision of Jesus or that they thought they saw Jesus in the flesh, but it was actually a vision. We have every reason to believe that it was actually a physical appearance of Jesus to the disciples. 1 Corinthians 15 also says, I think the text says he appeared to over 500 people at once. At one time, yeah. And when there's a hallucination, people don't have the same hallucination. Mm -hmm. So that detail also speaks against this idea of uh, it was just a hallucination, just a vision. Right. That one's, that one's pretty hard to explain. Like, then you have to come up with a new, almost theory that it's possible for 500 people to share the same hallucination. Well, you also have the same problem with 
him appearing to the disciples as a group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Right. And like eating a fish. Confusing. You know. Like, right. So you have details that speak against this idea of a hallucination. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You you almost at that point you have to argue that it's possible to to almost transfer an hallucination. Um, and it was interesting. So the the person that. Lane Craig is arguing with in this debate he actually holds to uh, all of them were visionary experiences and what he ends up basically having to argue for is that Peter had a vision of the Lord because he was so guilty about having denied him three times and then because he was so hyped up and was having this hallucination he passed it on to the other uh, ten disciples which is very strange I don't know how you hold to that like how that's more plausible than Jesus rising from the dead, but you, you, you work yourself into some weird, weird corners when you start arguing for things like that. Okay, last um, part of the story that I would like to address before we try to sum it up at the end. Uh, this is the one I actually I find most compelling of the of the four. I don't think science is evil. I don't think a historical or an academic approach to the Bible and history is, is wrong in any way. I think that that matters, but you can always argue those types of facts, and some people will carry greater weight for others than than, than they will for, for yourself. But I find the story of the disciples and the accounts of what they do after Jesus' resurrection um, and their experiences and the way that they are willing to give their lives for him to be some of the most compelling argument for this actually happened. Um, this actually transformed their lives. So, what, what do I mean when I say that the belief of the, of the disciples? First thing I've already mentioned is that they, they died for their beliefs. I, I'm not mistaken, pretty much every disciple at some point was, was martyred for, for their belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, and scholar J.P. Moreland, um, and he's quoted in um, Lee Strobel's book, is saying, People will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe they are true. But people usually won't die for their religious beliefs if they know their beliefs are false. So you know, someone could argue, well, you've got Muslims dying for their faith all the time. Like they, They'll drive bombs into buildings and, and they'll, they'll say it's because of belief. And you've also got Christians today who are dying for their faith. How is that any different from what the disciples did? And I think you have to take a step back and realize that the belief that we have now is a little bit, it is categorically different than the belief that the disciples had or that a Muslim has in uh, Muhammad because um, the disciples were the originator of the story that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if you really sincerely believe that something happened but you didn't see it, like you're, you're living based off of faith and you might be willing to die for that. And we have lots of people that are. But usually if you fabricate a story and make it up and now your life is being threatened, you're going to backtrack. Um, you're going to either disappear or claim that it didn't happen. But usually you don't go to your death for something that you made up in the first place. And so we, we see the disciples doing that. And this is also a pattern that we have seen um, in Jewish history before. Um, Jesus was not the first person to claim to be the Messiah. And he was not the first person who claimed to be the Messiah who was killed. Um, and actually also not the first one to be killed by Romans. And, and in the past what we had seen in Jewish history that was that when there was a Messiah who claimed uh, someone who claimed to be the Messiah and they died, um, their followers had two main options. The first was to go home and just give up. And the second one was to find a new Messiah. And we don't see the disciples doing either of those options. They do briefly go home, uh, but then they reappear claiming that this crucified man is the Son of God and, and resurrected from the dead, that he's actually still the Messiah. They could have easily picked somebody else. Um, like the book mentions they could have just picked James. Like James was Jesus' brother, why not make him the new Messiah? Or Peter, or, or, or somebody. Uh, but they don't. They, they stick with the, the man who was crucified. Um, and I, I just think that that's, yeah, it's pretty interesting that they, they do that. And it wouldn't make sense, especially from a Jewish perspective, unless that's actually what happened. And their, their whole worldview was transformed. I think it's also helpful to, to remember and keep in mind that the, the crucifixion of Jesus was a complete catastrophe for the disciples. Like, it was crushing. It wasn't just like, oh, I, I had a best friend, and he's now killed, and I, I don't get to, to see him anymore. Like, they had, they had staked everything on Jesus. And from not just from a physical standpoint, but a spiritual religious standpoint, like, they were banking everything that this is the Messiah, 
the kingdom of God was coming, um, and then he dies, just like previous previous uh, men who had claimed the Messiah had done. Um, that left them with pretty much nothing, uh, and that's not usually the circumstance where you're, you're going to then make up this fantastical account that um, Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know. I, w- I wouldn't necessarily say that this is true or give a lot of weight to it, but. Um, Lane Craig actually argues that more than likely, like Peter wasn't feeling guilty that he had denied Jesus three times. Like he might have even been feeling angry at Jesus for like failing them, for forgiving himself up and letting himself be killed. Like we, we kind of think of the disciples as like huddled and uh, you know, sad, but they, they may have also been angry. Like they may have been frustrated and discouraged and disappointed that like all of their hopes in Jesus had now been failed. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily true, and we don't have reason to believe that it is, but um, we don't really know what the, the mindset of the disciples was. Um, but it likely wasn't the type of situation where you would make up that your quote-unquote failed Messiah was now resurrected. We know they were afraid. We do know they were afraid. And we know they weren't afraid After. afterwards. Yeah. Those are two things that we do know. Hmm. I mean, like, cowering in fear, and then... Within days, a complete one eighty, going toe to toe with the same people that killed mm. Jesus and not budging on the facts, yeah, is a strong argument mm-hmm. for the reality of the resurrection. Yeah, I think it is. I agree. Another, another aspect of the belief that, of the disciples I think is a good um, indication uh, is the conversion of some of the major skeptics and also Jesus' appearance to some of the major skeptics. So if you wanted to go from a, you know, disciples made up the story and or they saw, they saw a vision of Jesus but it wasn't actually physical, you can kind of do that with the disciples. You can't really do that with Paul and James. Uh, for example. So James, brother of Jesus, didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah during his lifetime, um, didn't follow him, didn't honor him. Jesus dies, and then now we have James coming out and saying that he believes that Jesus is the Son of God, not only saying that, but saying that he believed that Jesus was resurrected and becoming one of the major leaders of the church in Jerusalem. That's really hard to explain. Like, why would he have a vision of Jesus? He didn't, there's really no reason for that to have happened. A very similar thing with Paul, but that's even more extreme because not only does Paul disregard Jesus and not believe in him, but he's actually killing people in the church and persecutes them. It has a, a very visceral hatred and disdain for them. Like, what, what reason does he have to have this vision of a, of a resurrected Jesus um, and to, to do a complete 180 himself to now proclaiming the gospel and building churches all over the world? It's really, really hard to explain that happening um, any other way than he actually witnessed Jesus and he experienced him and that Jesus was resurrected. And not, not only that, but like Paul um, Paul was persecuted um, for proclaiming the resurrection. Uh, I, I noticed this, or someone pointed this out to me at the end of Acts, uh, as we're seeing kind of the end of Paul's reaching Rome. Um, he's before the council in Jerusalem, I think where this, that whole process of him being tried starts. And he's talking to them, and he, he says to them something along the lines of, I'm on trial for you today because of what I've been preaching about the resurrection of the dead. And it's interesting that he doesn't say, because I claim that Jesus is the Messiah, or because I believe that Jesus died for our sins, um, or even that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, like he was under trial because of what he said about the resurrection. Um, and it was the resurrection that was so offensive to the Jews. Um, and it's, it's Paul who says, you know, the resurrection is foolishness to Gentiles and a stumbling block to Jews. Um, even though Paul may not have seen like the physical resurrected Jesus, may or may not have, we still see him basing his entire ministry and life off of this, off of this fact, and then ultimately uh, being tried and persecuted for it. Really hard to explain that outside of this actually happened. A couple of uh, kind of tied together um, facts beliefs, be, regarding the belief of the disciples and how it doesn't make sense outside of the resurrection is that uh, they completely deviated from standard Jewish belief and then also pretty t- t- uh, dramatically deviated from standard Jewish practice. So uh, Jewish belief, they deviated from it because the Jews did not believe in a dying or rising Messiah. So 
I've already hinted at a little bit, but basically as soon as the Messiah died, or I claim Messiah died, that story was over. They didn't actually believe that the Old Testament said that the Messiah would die. They didn't understand that that's what it was pointing to. And then they certainly didn't believe that it was pointing to a Messiah who would die and rise again. Uh, but you can kind of see that in Jesus' interactions with the disciples because he tells them, um, both in, in kind of riddles but also point blank, I'm going to die and rise again three days later. And they don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to them until Jesus actually rises again, and then they, they believe it. Um, that also is like, you, you've got them, their understanding of Jesus in the Old Testament being flipped. Where would that come from outside of the resurrection? Another belief that they had to, to deviate from was the, the fact that, according to Jewish law, um, Jesus was a heretic um, because he was hung on a tree. Paul talks about this in Galatians. He was cursed. He curses anyone who's hung on a tree, and that Christ was cursed for us on the cross. It, it, based off of Jewish law, Jesus would have been cast off and cursed by God. Not the type of person that you would want to say is actually the Son of God and or you know, rose again three days later. Um, he's a, According to Jewish belief, he was a failed Messiah and cursed by God. If they're making... The story up, they're doing a terrible they're job. They're doing a terrible job. Like, this just keeps coming up. You know, mm-hmm. like, this is a terrible, a terrible made up story. It's terrible made You shouldn't, <laughs> you know. Right. There's, yeah, because I botched it terribly. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're trying to tie, if they're going to claim that what's happening is tied to the Old Testament. If you want to take it as its own story, um, fine, it's, it's just like any other Greek or Roman myths. But if you're going to tie it back to the Old Testament, any well-respecting Jew would poke holes all through that. Like, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. And that's what they do. And that's what Paul did before he, he, he met Jesus. Um, and the last belief that we've already, I've already mentioned a couple times is that um, the Jews believed that uh, physical resurrection happened at the last days. They didn't think it would happen during this life. So it wouldn't make sense to now claim that Jesus is resurrected now. Um, that's different. What about social structures that changed? So the, the Christian um, orthodoxy and, and the way that they did things was quite a bit different from, from the Jews. Uh, some of those things being that there's no more sacrifices. Um, Jesus was the sacrifice, and now you have the disciples saying, well, actually, we don't need to offer these ritualistic sacrifices anymore. That's a complete shift from what they were used to and what they spent most of their lives doing. you got them claiming that we're not saved by the law alone anymore. Uh, we're not saved. Not, we don't become you know, right with God through keeping the law or following the law. It's through Jesus. Um, you've got them, them having their Sabbath on Sunday, the, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and not Saturday, not the, not the same day as the Jews. And then you've also got them claiming that God is actually three in one, not just one, and that Jesus is God which doesn't make sense from a Jewish perspective. Um, and it's part of why Christians get accused of being not monotheistic. Um, it doesn't make sense from a traditional Jewish reading of the Old Testament and from what they would have taught in their synagogues. Not the type of thing, again, I mean, not the type of thing that if you're disciples of a quote-unquote failed Messiah would try to come up with. Um, it's not the type of story you would want to believe unless it actually happened. And you've also got the, um, so from all of that, you have just the, the massive emergence of the church uh, from that early time period. Uh, you've got the church growing and expanding. Um, I was talking with actually a couple people from, from GSC earlier this week um, about preparing for this, and I mentioned the term physical evidence. Um, and they, they got them talking a little bit about how there's, like, there's not really any physical evidence, and the reality is like, there, there really isn't. Uh, the evidence that we have for the resurrection of Jesus is always going to be like historical. Um, we don't have like a, really a lot to say. Well, this is, gives us without a doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. But I was reflecting on it a little bit afterwards, and I, if if I were to posit like a piece of physical evidence for the resurrection, even if it's not um, the most compelling, I do think the fact that the church still exists today is a pretty good reason to believe that, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. You could use that and say, well, why does Islam exist today and Buddhism, all of those things. So I, I'm not saying that it's the, the most, it's not an airtight argument for the resurrection. But we do have whole um, countries, you have whole groups of people that have based their life off of this belief that Jesus rose from the dead. And you definitely had people early on um, 
in the in the history of the church basing their their entire livelihood off of the resurrection. Uh, I think that that at least should give someone pause to think, you know, why why do we have people doing that? What reason do they have? Um, yeah. To close this, to close the close the lid a little bit, um, we've we've looked at what I think are pretty well established facts, and that most New Testament scholars would 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 agree happened, which is that Jesus died. Jesus was buried, that an empty tomb was found a few days later, that he made some sort of appearances to people after the fact, uh, and that the disciples believed that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. I think what we can ask ourselves to do, but we can also ask people who don't believe in this to do, is based off of those four pretty well-established facts, what what is the best explanation of what actually happened? Um, Can you explain what happened with hallucinations? Can you explain what happened with um, a, a mass gravesite? Um, which story covers all of those uh, the best? So a, a helpful tool that um, Lane Craig mentions and I think is, is really useful is um, just to take the, the six major historical criteria that uh, quote unquote secular historian would use and kind of flip it and, and just apply it to this scenario. So I'm gonna mention those six quickly. Um, the first is um, ex- explanatory scope. Does it actually explain all of what happened? Does, does your theory explain all of what happened? Uh, explanatory power. Does your theory help you understand all of what happened? Does it make sense of it or does it still leave lots of question marks? Is it plausible? Not is it probable necessarily or like the most likely, but can you make sense of it based off of what you know of reality and, and how the world works? Is it um, ad hoc or contrived? Um, meaning, do you have to come up with other assumptions to make it possible? Or can it pretty much stand on its own and, and exist? Does it accord with accepted belief? Similar to the plausibility, but like based off of what, you, what is already believed and known, like does, it, does it fit with that? Or is it completely out, out there? And then the sixth one being, is, is it the best at all five? Does it beat any other competing theory? Um, at explaining the, those four aspects of, of history. Uh, and I th- just running through those with, with the resurrection account, it really does cover those better than any other, um, any other theory. If Jesus rose from the dead, then all four of the facts that we talked about today make sense. Like it covers all of them, it helps us explain them and understand how all those things fit together. As opposed to, for example, the hallucination theory doesn't account for the empty tomb. But the resurrection, covers all four. Um, explanatory power. Uh, it helps us make sense of, of what actually happened. Uh, not only that data happened, but, but why did it happen and how did it happen. It's plausible. Um, it doesn't really, it doesn't com- uh, compete against any existing uh, understanding of, of the world um, other than that, that God exists. And, in, and so similarly, it's not actually like ad hoc or contrived. Like the only assumption you have to take into the scenario is that God exists and that because God exists, miracles are possible. Outside of that, the whole story stands on its own. You don't have to come up with competing theories of, uh, of you know, who these different people were and what happened. Uh, and so then it also it, it accords with accepted belief. So all four of those, those, those um, facts, like most well-respected scholars agree that they happen. We're not coming up with like this extra belief Really, the only key component that we're, we're adding is that God exists and that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so, to, uh, this is my last kind of encouragement. Uh, I think that that brings up one of the challenges of, of talking with someone about the resurrection of Jesus in a purely academic, historical way. Um, when, when I was reading this debate between the, the two scholars, sometimes I felt like they were completely talking in different languages. Like they weren't even really addressing one another. Like one person would make an argument and they would kind of get addressed, but then they would come up with their own arguments. Just like there's a lot of, of mismatch. Um, what was helpful about this book was they have the section with the debate, but then at the end, both of the debaters come back and they reflect on the debate and they, they give you like another 20 pages, which is really helpful because there's some things that, some gaps. Um, and one of the things that um, Lane Craig notes that I found helpful was that um, 
the difficulty in discussing the topic of Jesus' resurrection in this way is not that um, we're talking different languages, per se, or that we don't agree on the facts. What's difficult is that we don't agree on what the possible options are. Um, most, uh, a lot of secular historians and, and um, scientific naturalists will kind of come to this discussion having pre-decided that miracles aren't possible, that it's not even one of the live options. And so if you try to bring in, well, maybe Jesus was resurrected by God, that doesn't fit because, well, that's just impossible. That's not even, um, it doesn't fit within the facts. If it is one of the options, then you can actually fairly look at, here's what happened, here's the possibilities, what, what best fits that. But they're not really willing to, to do that. They're going to argue that that's not possible. They're not going to say that outright, but when you really look at the arguments, they're, they're unwilling to address the possibility even um, that Jesus rose from the dead. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't, um, no, we should just completely disregard them or that, that coming up with natural explanations is, is wrong. Um, I think it's even possible to say, like, yeah, try to find a naturalistic explanation if you can. If, if it's possible and you can explain what happened in, a, in pretty simple terms, go for it. But it doesn't mean or doesn't preclude the possibility that there is a supernatural explanation. And if we're doing that and we're going to basically not stop fighting until we come up with a naturalistic explanation, that's how you back yourself in the corners and, and have to argue that 500 people had the same hallucination because you're, you're unwilling to give ground the possibility to a supernatural explanation. So that, that, I think that means that debating and discussing this with a, with a non-believer isn't going to be particularly easy. Um, and you might, you know, you could probably talk for an hour and come out of it and feel like nothing, nothing happened. Um, which I, I think, again, reminds us of the need for the Spirit to work, um, the Spirit to, to provide, um, to open their eyes to see. Um, and it, just, it may also take time. That they really have to be willing to accept the possibility that there, there can be miracles and that God exists. Otherwise, yes, it doesn't make sense. Um, but even it not making sense is actually quite unreasonable and illogical. That's what I've got for notes. Any any thoughts, questions? Anything you want to poke holes at? Anything that was particularly confusing or that I went over too fast? Great. All right, let me... Um... Well, I do have one. Yeah. So um, it sounded to me like the defense that was given is all drawn from Scripture. Hmm. And all the arguments for the hallucination and stuff are all drawn from what's presented to us in the Bible. Yep. So what about those who don't consider the Bible as being a uh, reputable source to make such conclusions? That's a great question. Um, I wish I would have made sure to include that preface in the beginning. I think when you're um, dealing with the resurrection of Jesus, you have two options. One is to say the Bible you know, doesn't count. It's irreputable. You can't trust it. Or to reinterpret what the Bible actually says. Most of what I was saying was addressing, reinterpreting what the Bible says, partially because I think we've already had a couple lessons on, um, like, why do we believe what the Bible says? Like, why do we include that in the canon? So I was including that as kind of an assumption. But I would say that those that that's the argument that's most difficult to to address. Um, I didn't actually have enough time to, to read through it in a way that to fully understand it. But okay. I think that's really the only option left is to argue that the Bible isn't true or reputable. Um, but I think again, just uh, you can point it to some of the things that I shared. Of we've got these four independent accounts of what happened. You've got First Corinthians. Um, so there, there's good evidence to believe that it's trustworthy, but that would take more time to walk through that with them. Okay. And I'm not equipped to provide that at the That's moment. Okay. okay. Before I pray, next week again will be why does the resurrection matter? So a little more, a little bit more heavily focused on what does the Bible actually say? You can't really get that from any other sources. It's what does the Bible say about the resurrection and why it matters and how it affects our lives? So let me pray. Lord God, we do thank you that we have um, we have a hope 
um, in Jesus that um, is amazing, um, is great, um, and that cannot be shaken. I thank you that we do have lots um, at our disposal to, to give us confidence um, that, that Jesus did actually exist, that he did die for our sins, and that he did rise again three days later. And I ask that you would give us greater faith. I know that we can't have 100% certainty or confidence that it did happen. But I pray that in studying topics like this and in reading your word, that you would give us greater assurance and greater confidence and boldness um, and joy in the salvation that we have. Um, and that that joy would fuel our lives, the way that we work, we worship, um, and especially the way that we witness. Um, that we would not witness out of a place of um, timidness, um, out of fear that we'll say the wrong thing and be exposed as a liar, but confidence that, um, Lord, you are true, um, that you've given us everything we need to be, be faithful witnesses of Christ. Um, ultimately, Lord, that your spirit will work and will save, um, and that it is your power that matters. Um, pray over all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, thank you all. Thanks.